welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. We are back on the air after a brief hiatus. I hope everyone listening had a wonderful and relaxing holidays and wish you all a happy new year. On this episode of the podcast, we will return to one of our favorite topics, BEPS 2.0, and in particular, the OECD's recent release of the Pillar 2 Global Anti-Base Erosion, or GLOBE, model rules. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Quinn Huynh and Marcus Heeland. Quinn is a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and has very recently joined us from the Treasury Department, where she was the Deputy International Tax Counsel for Treaty Affairs. Marcus is a Managing Director in KPMG's Economic and Valuation Services Practice. He has recently rejoined KPMG after serving as an advisor at the OECD on BEPS 2.0. Quinn and Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Happy to be here. On December 20th, 2021, the OECD released its Globe Model Rules, which propose a framework for imposing a global minimum tax of 15% on certain multinational entities. The global minimum tax would be implemented principally through two rules, the Income Inclusion Rule, or IIR, a kissing cousin to our guilty, and the Under Tax Payments Rule, or UTPR, which is like a second cousin twice removed from our beat. The IIR imposes a top-up tax on a parent entity with respect to low tax income of certain members of its group, referred to as constituent entities. The UTPR, on the other hand, serves as a backstop to the IIR, and would generally allocate the top-up tax to non-parent affiliates of the constituent entity by denying deductions or imputing income when the top-up tax is not otherwise imposed under the IIR. Not covered under the model rules is the subject tax rule, or STTR, which is a treaty-based provision that would deny reduced withholding on certain payments, such as royalties, to the extent the recipient is not subject to tax at a 9% rate. There's certainly a lot to talk about here related to the rules themselves, but before going into the details, I wanted to begin this episode discussing the implementation timeline for these rules, as well as the potential obstacles to this implementation. As we've discussed in prior episodes of the podcast, the OECD is a standard-setting organization. It cannot make law. So the model rules are just that, model rules that serve as a framework for participating countries to adapt into their own domestic laws. Let's start with you, Marcus. What is the timeline that the OECD has laid down for countries to implement Pillar 2, and is this timeline realistic? Yeah, so the implementation timeline is unchanged from what was agreed in the October Inclusive Framework Statement. So it remains envisioned that the income inclusion rule and the subject to tax rule 
will be effective in 2023 with the undertax payment rule effective one year later in 2024. This is the timeline that was set out by the G20. So the OECD will have to follow that until the G20 changes the instructions. In terms of whether this is realistic, clearly it's ambitious, but we've already seen evidence that the EU, for example, is keen to move uh, quickly with a draft directive being released just a few days after the OECD released the model rules. So it is possible that some jurisdictions could successfully implement the income inclusion rule by 2023, but I think the more realistic scenario is 2024 at the earliest, at least in most jurisdictions. Switzerland, for example, has already publicly indicated that 2023 will be challenging given the legislative process may involve a public referendum in their particular case. And then, of course, there's the wrinkle of what's happening in the United States. If it becomes clear that the changes to guilty and beat are not going to happen, that would you know, obviously be highly disruptive to Pillar 2. And I think at a minimum would likely slow down the implementation of Pillar 2 as countries would need time to reassess things. I mean, it could even potentially derail Pillar 2 altogether. It seems the biggest question in this regard is the EU. As you'll recall, three EU countries came into the OECD agreement at the 11th hour. So Ireland, Hungary, and Estonia. It's not clear yet whether those three countries would support an EU directive implementing Pillar 2 if the U.S. does not make conforming changes to guilty, which would at minimum, I think, complicate things in the EU. But then you could see how that could have potential knock-on effects in other countries. Thanks, Marcus. Quinn, let me turn to you. BEPS 2.0 is touted as a two-pillar solution to the digital economy. The other pillar, Pillar 1, is not addressed in the model rules. Pillar one, as we've discussed on previous episodes, at a high level would allocate a certain percentage of the excess returns of the largest, most profitable companies, so-called amount A, to market jurisdictions. We've also discussed in previous episodes the political obstacles to implementing Pillar one, particularly in the U.S., which may not only imperil Pillar one here, but also the project as a whole. Quinn, what is the timeline for Pillar 1, and how does Pillar 1 fit into Pillar 2 from a political and practical perspective? Do you think the OECD and participating countries view Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 as a package deal, or is there a scenario where countries move forward on one without the other? Politically, there has been pressure to keep these two pillars together as a package deal. It was very important that the OECD inclusive framework statement agreed to last year included an ambitious timeline laid for the implementation of both pillars with a view that they would come into effect in 2023. The reality that we're now seeing, though, is that it appears the timeline may be slipping and that Pillar 2 is more advanced in terms of development than Pillar 1. On Pillar 2, as Marcus noted, the OECD released the final GLOBE rules last year, and they expect to have GLOBE commentary released within a few weeks. We also saw that the EU moved very quickly to issue a proposed directive that would implement the GLOBE rules within Europe, so that there's also been movement on trying to get the final model rules into domestic implementing legislation, at least in some countries. On Pillar 1, we've not seen further progress since the October statement, except that the OECD released a plan for upcoming engagement that they expect to have this year with public stakeholders on both pillars. With respect to Pillar 1, more specifically, the plan essentially provides that over the next few months, the Secretariat would be releasing working documents on the separate building blocks for Amount A. For example, those blocks could include the sourcing rules, the marketing distribution safe harbor, elimination of double tax. Those are all examples. 
it would be a piecemeal release of issues rather than waiting on all elements to be published at the same time. There will also be work on amount B with a paper released by mid-2022 and public consultations to be held on that paper. Interestingly, the plan notes that the reason they're taking the approach of releasing these documents as they're developed is to keep to the political timeline that they agreed to in October, which means politically in this release, their view is that they're still aiming to have amount A come into effect in 2023. And I think, again, that's a signal politically that it's important for them to show that there's progress on both pillars, even though at this point we've largely only seen textual development on the globe aspects of pillar two. Putting aside the politics, there is no reason that one pillar could not advance ahead of the other if it's further along in development. So as we've seen, Pillar 2, or at least the globe aspects of Pillar 2, is further along in its implementation than Pillar 1. And so it could be that Pillar 2 would move first with Pillar 1 catching up. And as we have noted, Pillar 1 itself would require a multilateral instrument that would, among other things, coordinate on dispute prevention and resolution, whereas Pillar 2 does not require a multilateral convention to be used in order to implement the globe aspects. Marcus already referred to another obstacle, the failure to pass the Build Back Better Act here in the U.S., or at least potential failure. We've talked extensively on this podcast about the many changes to the U.S. tax system that were proposed in the BBVA, many of which would bring the guilty and be closer to the Pillar 2 agreement. The House passed the BBVA in November of last year, but a bit before Christmas, Joe Manchin, Democratic senator from the second best Virginia, said that he could not support the bill. Because the Democrats in the Senate can't afford to lose a single vote, Joe Manchin's disapproval, if it endures, would be fatal to the BBBA. Will the BBBA be revived this spring? I can't say. My crystal ball is cloudy. If our listeners want someone with a better functioning crystal ball than myself, they should check out Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a podcast hosted by our very own John Gimigliano. But I think it's safe to say that the passage of the BBBA is, to be kind to the Democrats, uncertain. If the BBBA is not passed, how does that impact Pillar 2? Let's remember the U.S. pushed hard for Pillar 2. Secretary Yellen called the political agreement on a 15% global country-by-country min-tax historic. But under current law, our min-tax, i.e. the guilty, is computed on a blended basis rather than the country-by-country basis proposed in Pillar 2. The BBBA would calculate guilty country-by-country. And the current U.S. effective tax rate on guilty of 10.5% or 13 and an eighth, depending on how you do the math, is in either case below the 15% global min-tax rate agreed to in Pillar 2. The BBBA would bring the guilty rate up to 15%. Also, B is not well-liked by many of the countries of the OECD because of the fact that it applies to related party payments indiscriminately without regard to whether there's actually any base erosion. The BBBA would fix this aspect of the B by providing an exception for payments subject to a sufficiently high level of tax. The Biden administration pushed for Pillar 2 on the assumption that Congress would be able to deliver on the BBBA, and now what? 
the expression hoisted by their own petard keeps on rattling through my head. Though, to be honest, I don't really know what a petard is. Quinn, how do you think failure of the BBBA might impact Pillar 2? It will be very interesting to see how this plays out. The U.S. has been a large player in the negotiations leading up to the release of the GLOBE model rules. On the one hand, it may not prevent certain participating countries from implementing these rules themselves. The fact that the BBA has not moved in the United States, especially those jurisdictions that have largely been on board with Pillar 2 since the discussions began. As you know, and as we've seen, the EU has already moved with a proposed directive on implementing the globe. And so I think it's an indication of how eager some jurisdictions may be to enact these rules very swiftly that they believe will end the so-called race to the bottom on corporate taxation. I'll note that if countries are able to implement the income inclusion rule quickly, there will be increasing tension on how the United States would fare in light of the fact that the U.S. is still seeking coexistence on our guilty regime, and that this movement by the European Union, for example, may highlight that increasing tension. On the other hand, there are those countries that may want to use the fact that the BBA has slowed down here in the United States as a reason for slowing down the implementation of the GLOBE model rules in their jurisdiction. This may be true where those jurisdictions want to ensure that the United States or that there's an opportunity at least to review the U.S. guilty rules and whether they may coexist with the model GLOBE rules. And in doing so, it would ensure, hopefully, that the U.S., if it were to get guilty coexistence, that U.S. CFCs and subsidiaries operating in those jurisdictions would not be adversely impacted. This may also be true where jurisdictions may want to turn their focus a bit more to the development of Pillar 1 and allowing Pillar 1 to be more developed so that the timeline for implementation of both pillars could be aligned. And so the fact that the U.S. BBBA legislation is at risk could just be an opportunity for them to say, it's not clear, obviously, that guilty reform and changes won't happen at some point later this year. I think that that legislation still remains to be seen what will happen to it. But I think it does give other countries an opportunity to say that the focus should be now on Pillar 1 and trying to develop that rather than focusing so much on the implementation of the GLOBE rules themselves. Thanks, Quinn. And so let's assume that Pillar 2 does get implemented, but the BBBA is not passed. Marcus, how would this impact U.S. multinationals? In a world where the guilty is not treated as a qualifying income inclusion rule, which is, I think, the world that we're in if the changes are not made, I think there's a couple things that U.S. companies would need to be focused on. So the first thing is the way that the Pillar 2 model rules operate is they first defer to the ultimate parent jurisdiction. And if that jurisdiction has implemented a qualifying income inclusion rule, then it's that jurisdiction that basically does the work and collects the top-up tax. But that wouldn't be the case if we don't have guilty coexistence. So the next step is you drop down in the group structure to the holding companies. And the income inclusion rule would then apply at the level of the holding companies in respect of the subsidiaries that they own. 
if there is no holding companies in the structure or those holding companies have not implemented a qualified income inclusion rule themselves, then U.S. companies would be subject to the under-tax payment rule in respect of their CFCs. So the main consequence to U.S. companies of the failure to get guilty coexistence is that they would be exposed to the full Pillar 2 rule set with respect to their foreign operations, which would otherwise be more or less hands off in a world where guilty is treated as a compliant income inclusion rule. Thanks, Marcus. And then there's just the question of whether that results in double taxation to the yeah. to the U.S. taxpayer or is that double taxation relieved by the U.S. fisc at the expense of the fisc, which in either case seems to put enormous pressure on the U.S. to go through and, and make the changes eventually. Yeah, I mean, it, effectively in that world where we don't have guilty coexistence, you'd have the foreign income of a U.S. multinational being subject simultaneously to two different global minimum tax regimes that would continue to be subject to the guilty rules. But then at the same time, it would be subject to the pillar two rules, whether it's the income inclusion rule of a holding company or the under tax payment rule of a subsidiary country, you would have both regimes applying simultaneously. And there has not been a ton of thought that has gone into how to coordinate those two regimes in this scenario, because I think the operating assumption of the OECD and, and many countries that are participating in this is that the United States would, in fact, be able to make the conforming changes to guilty to secure guilty coexistence. So I think moving to this alternative scenario will require quite a bit of thought from the OECD, from the United States and other countries to figure out how exactly does Pillar 2 coordinate in this world where the guilty regime is not a compliant income inclusion rule and is applying at the same time as the Pillar 2 rule set. Thanks, Marcus. Now that we've considered the path to implementation and, and its interaction with the BBBA, let's get into a bit more of the detail of what's actually in the global model rules. At the top of this episode, I broadly outlined the 15% global min tax and the role that the IAR and the UTPR play in implementing it. Now, the general concepts of the IAR and the UTPR have been widely known since the OECD's release of the Pillar 2 blueprint in October of 2020. But the GLOBE model rules made some important changes to the rules as articulated in the blueprint. Let's start off with the calculation of the 15% effective tax rate, or ETR, which is relevant for both the income inclusion rule and the under-tax payments rule. At a high level, the computation requires the parent entity to compute the relevant income known as GLOBE income and relevant taxes known as covered taxes of its constituent entities that are part of its multinational group on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. One of the more difficult aspects of this calculation is dealing with timing differences in the recognition of income and loss and the payment of foreign taxes. These timing differences can often cause swings in the ETR of a constituent entity. Marcus, can you give us a little background on the OECD's approach to dealing with these timing differences and how the GLOBE model rules ultimately decided to address it? So there's been a significant evolution in the rules in this space around managing timing differences. If you go back in time to the Pillar 2 blueprint, 
the way it worked there is you would compute the jurisdictional effective tax rate that you referenced, Gary, using cash taxes in the numerator. And then, of course, financial accounting income has always been the measure of income, which is the denominator in the in the ETR. And it then allowed a carry forward mechanism to manage timing differences. So if a jurisdiction was above the minimum rate in a jurisdiction in, say, year one, it would carry forward those excess taxes to eliminate top of tax in that jurisdiction in a later low tax year. Equally, if a jurisdiction was low tax in year one and had to pay the pillar two top of tax in, in that year as a result, that top of tax could be credited in a high tax year. And then separately, there was a, a loss carry forward mechanism. Many businesses raise concerns about that type of carry forward approach during the OECD's public consultation process in 2020. And the concern there was, I would say, twofold. So first, there was a sense that the carry forward mechanism was was quite complicated to apply because it required tracking all of these various attributes at the jurisdictional level. And second, for companies with long-term timing differences, which is common in, for example, the extractives industry, there was a concern that the carry-forward approach would result in top-up tax that wouldn't be creditable for a very long time until those timing differences reverse themselves. The, the most common suggestion from businesses during the consultation was to get rid of that carry-forward approach and to instead use deferred tax accounting. And the point there was that the OECD had already decided to use financial accounting concepts for the definition of income. So why not use financial accounting concepts with respect to measuring taxes? And after all, deferred tax accounting is audited. And, and many companies also you know, just pointed out that deferred tax accounting is specifically designed to manage timing differences. And so there seemed to be strong logic in leveraging uh, deferred tax accounting for purposes of measuring uh, the tax. So the OECD in the final rules that were released before the end of the year has attempted to respond to those concerns and now, in fact, has moved to a deferred tax accounting model in the final rules. But I don't think it is what business was really asking for uh, because it is not really deferred tax accounting. It's deferred tax accounting with many adjustments, including several uh, measures that are referred to as safeguards. And the most notable things here is that the final rules limit the recognition of deferred tax assets and deferred tax liabilities to the minimum rate, regardless of whether the actual tax rate in the jurisdiction could be substantially higher than the minimum rate. The other notable limitation is that with the exception of a prescribed good list, DTLs need to be tracked to ensure they reverse over a defined grace period, which is five years. If the DTL does not reverse within that grace period, the ETR from the year, you need to go back and recalculate it as if the DTL is not counted. And if there's additional top-up tax, then that needs to be paid. I think most businesses accept the need for a reversal requirement generally, but I think most were expecting a, a seven to 10 year grace period rather than the five years that was provided in the final rules. And I would note that another common concern with the restrictions that have been added to the deferred tax accounting rules is that they dramatically increase the complexity of the rules. And I think there is now a, a legitimate question whether the OECD has actually simplified relative to the carry forward approach that was provided in the blueprint. Marcus, can you give us an example of how this rule would work out well for a taxpayer or maybe an example of where it would have a negative impact? It's difficult to generalize because the rules here are, are so complicated. I think you have to look at this almost on a company by company basis. But to provide an example, since, since you asked, I think the, the new 
deferred tax accounting rules are generally viewed as favorable for the insurance industry, for example. And I say that because many of the major timing differences that arise in that sector, so if you think of insurance reserves, insurance policy, deferred acquisition costs, and fair value accounting on unrealized gains, all three of those items made it onto that good list that I referred to earlier, meaning that the DTLs related to those items are not subject to this five-year reversal requirement. And I think in most cases, that's a better result compared to the carry forward approach in the blueprint, which effectively ignored all three of those items that I that I mentioned. So that, I think, is an example of where uh, you know, you'd generally expect a, uh, a sector to view these rules favorably. In terms of the negative impact, it's those restrictions and safeguards that I mentioned earlier that caused problems, particularly the requirement to recast the deferred items at the 15% minimum rate. And as I've tried to emphasize throughout, I think really everyone loses from an administrative and compliance standpoint because every company I speak with is of the view that these rules are extraordinarily complicated to apply. Any major changes from the blueprint to the global model rules with respect to the UTPR? Yes, I think this is the deferred tax accounting was one big shift from the blueprint to the final model rules. The other big shift is in this area, the under tax payment rules. So there's been a significant evolution here as well. Stepping back, the under tax payment rule has always been envisioned as a backstop to the income inclusion rule, meaning that the same policy objective of a 15% minimum tax applied on a jurisdictional basis is intended to be delivered by the undertax payment rule if an income inclusion rule is not already applying. But that policy wasn't always the case with the version of the undertax payment rule that was provided in the blueprint. First, the ultimate parent jurisdiction was given a sort of special status. Uh, so to the extent that there was low tax income in that ultimate parent jurisdiction, the undertax payment rule often didn't collect 100% of the top-up tax uh, related to that jurisdiction. Second, the blueprint generally limited the collection mechanism for the undertax payment rule to related party payments. In some structures, there may be rather limited amounts of related party payments being made. And so there was instances where there just wasn't sufficient deductions to deny to collect the full amount of top-up tax that was being allocated to that jurisdiction. The new undertax payment rule, which is the version that's in the final rules that was released uh, at the end of last year, effectively eliminates all those limitations and in, in caps. I think for those that are just meeting the undertax payment rule for the first time, I think the best way to accelerate your understanding of it is to first understand that the undertax payment rule in practice has virtually nothing to do with undertax payments. It is just an allocation mechanism. For example, if the top-up tax that's due under the income inclusion rule is 100, but no relevant jurisdiction in the group is applying a qualified income inclusion rule, then in general, the undertax payment rule just allocates that 100 of top-up tax out using a headcount intangible asset-based allocation key. If France, in this example, is 50% of the group's headcount intangible assets, France will be allocated 50 of that 100 of top-up tax. Then France would then collect that 50 of tax by denying deductions. And it's any deductions. It could be related or unrelated. And even the, the model rules seem to go further than that by allowing France, in this example, to potentially just deem income. And then finally, there's a provision that, that provides that if France, in my example, still hasn't collected that 50 of, of top-up tax, then that excess amount is carried forward to a future year. 
So as you can see, the undertax payment rule has evolved significantly from the blueprint. I would describe it as just being broader and more robust than what was in the blueprint. And all of that seems to be done with a view towards making the undertax payment rule as robust of a backstop to the income inclusion rule as possible. The globe model rules were released without commentary, but the OECD has indicated that it will release its commentary on these rules by the end of the month. Quinn, what are some of the issues that you would expect to be clarified in the commentary? Hopefully a lot of the issues. I mean, I think, as you know, the globe model rules are a good start on how the regime is going to work. But many companies and tax practitioners are eager to have the commentary and perhaps some examples included in there to fill these gaps in terms of how to interpret these sort of high-level rules and how they will work. I think we hopefully will get you know some more clarity around how to perform the calculations and the adjustments. Marcus only touched on some of the adjustments that would need to be made to take into account timing differences with respect to the financial accounting standards and tax. But in addition to those types of adjustments, there are going to be hopefully guidance on, you know, for example, how Pillar 1 taxes will interact with the Pillar 2 regime and whether or not the Pillar 1 tax would be treated as a covered tax. We assume they will be and which covered entities would be allocated those taxes. I think there should also be hopefully guidance on the types of mechanics that the UTPR could be applied to. I think Marcus indicated that France could take the option of disallowing or denying a deduction, but they might have also taken the ability to try to deem income to constituent entities that are in their jurisdiction. And hopefully the commentary will flesh out more of the types of tools that would be permissible to jurisdictions in adopting various methods to collect the top-up tax. There will hopefully also be more guidance on the administration of this regime, including the filing requirements for MEs that are impacted. The GLOBE model rules did include a chapter on the administration and the filing, but it also recognized that some of this guidance will come out uh, later, perhaps, and would be incorporated into some sort of agreed administrative guidance rules by the jurisdictions that are implementing the GLOBE model rules. We know that, for example, as we indicated earlier, there will be a stakeholder opportunity to comment about the administration of this regime in February. And so perhaps even with the commentary coming out before the end of the month, there may be some additional guidance that will come out from follow-on to the public consultation. And then further, the model rules talk about potentially the safe harbors that could be developed as a simplification to this regime. And there has not been any guidance, and I don't know if the commentary will be the right place for them to start adding some of that, but I think um, what we're expecting is that even with the GLOBE model rules, even with the commentary coming out, that there's going to be hopefully a lot more guidance because this regime is not simple to apply. Marcus, if I'm a tax director of a large U.S. multinational, what should I be thinking of right now and what what should I be doing? As it relates to to Pillar 2, which is where we do have a fair amount of detail from the OECD now, I I think there's three different uh, buckets that I'm seeing companies looking at. So I think the first thing is 
just getting educated on what the model rules say. You know, there's quite a bit of complexity there, as we talked about throughout. I think just getting your arms around the rules themselves, the income inclusion rule, the under tax payment rule, how they apply in respect of different ownership structures, how pillar two defines income, how pillar two defines taxes, all of that complexity. The first step is to just get educated on all the various mechanisms that are provided under the model rules. I think having then understood them, you then move to, I think, the second component, which is to start getting it into an Excel spreadsheet. So I think putting numbers to this and, and doing a quantitative exercise. And I think that second piece of the modeling is so important because you really cannot rely on intuition with respect to pillar two, because the way that income is defined, the way that tax is defined is not the way that I think you would traditionally think about an effective tax rate. So it's essential to even in jurisdictions that you'd otherwise consider high tax, I think it's essential to put numbers to this and actually let the modeling guide the results. Then the third piece is understanding them and then modeling it. I think many companies are starting to think about if all of this passes, all this is implemented, say in 2023 or maybe it's 2024, how would they react? Would you rationalize certain aspects of the model and, and of the structure? And I think so many companies are starting to think about that question, although I would say that most companies are not doing anything that's irreversible at this point because there is so much added uncertainty in the pillar two space just with what's happening in the United States. I think a lot of interest in doing the modeling and the scenario planning, but I think until there's more clarity on exactly where this is going, you know, I don't see too many companies taking irreversible steps at this point, but nonetheless, many groups are already starting to think about potential restructurings and, and, and rationalizing their footprint in light of the global minimum tax. Thank you, Marcus, and thank you, Quinn, for joining me today and sharing your valuable insights on the GLOBE model rules. To our listeners, as always, we'll be here to update you on the developments and progress or setbacks along the road to U.S. and global international tax reform. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these latest developments. Until our next episode, take care.